What up, Seekers? Oh boy, oh boy, do I have a treat for you today. So, just, I think it was two days ago, a young scholar by the name of Tiamasu dropped us a DM on Instagram telling us that he grew up in an indigenous tribe in Northeast India, Nagaland, the Owl tribe, and he has now gone on to do a PhD in cultural anthropology, studying his own people's tradition and the syncretic religion that's been merged between Christianity and the Ao indigenous tradition because of the Baptist missionaries that came there about 200 years ago. It is a fascinating conversation. I get to learn all about the Ao indigenous traditions and what happens when they mix with Christianity. It is brilliant and you do not want to miss it. The psychological depth of the tradition and what happens when it mixes with Christianity is absolutely fascinating. Any Anyone who's interested in religion at all must check out this conversation. It is cutting edge research by someone within the tradition themselves, both personal and passionate and at the same time critical and academic. This is a fantastic conversation. I'm so, so glad that Tia came on and did an interview with us. And I hope if you are studying something interesting, if you have an interesting story, please follow his lead, get on board, and we would love to talk to you and keep spreading the good work. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Love you. Catch you on the other side. So Tiamasu, uh, Tia, yeah, uh, you, yeah, Tiamsa, Tiamsa, um, yeah. Where are you from? Yeah, so I'm from, I'm, I'm actually from Nagaland, one of the northeastern states of India, and but then currently I'm here in Meghalaya doing my PhD uh, here in a university called Northeastern Hill University. Nagaland is northeast of India, you say? Yeah, it's it's there in northeast of India. Uh, we have seven states there, uh, okay. seven states. So that comprises of Northeast India, those seven states. And what is Nagaland like? So it's pretty much a tribal area where uh, different tribal people live. And I think it's very interesting that we all, there are 16 or 17 uh, different tribes there in Nagaland, mm -hmm. where we all have different language. We all have different attires. And, um, and food-wise, we all eat the same food. Uh, food-wise, it's very similar. But then I think people are still living in a tribal area where we have our own or social political system also, interestingly, yeah. And you were born into one of those 17 tribes in Nagaland? Yeah, I'm, I was born in, uh, I was born and brought up in Nagaland um, in, in one of the district called, uh, in one of the district called Dangdongya. I'm not even going to try to pronounce that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and which tribe did you grow up in? So I belong to the Ao tribe. So uh, okay. Ao tribe is the one in Nagaland uh, to whom uh, Christianity first reached. So the missionary mm. first came in contact with the Ao tribes. How, how long ago did missionaries come to the Ao? Um, it, it, it's, been, it's been almost, let's say, 250 years wow. now. Something wow. like that almost, yeah. So that's a significant amount of time. Yeah, it's a very significant and amount. I'm curious, uh, what denomination of Christianity were these missionaries that came? Yeah, so interestingly, the denomination is Baptist. So uh -huh. the, the, this is the branch of the American Baptist missionaries, actually. Really? So, yeah, American missionaries, yeah. British, so, the American Baptist missionaries were the one who came to Nagaland. 
American Baptist missionaries came to Northeast India. How, like, how did that happen? What was the circumstances? What led to that? So, interestingly, it was, I mean, long, long back when, when even before the American Baptists came, uh, there were some Catholics who came to near Nagaland, but then uh, they were not able to penetrate Nagaland because uh, the, the circumstances was that uh, we Nagas, where we live, uh, looked by the outsiders as a very, uh, let's say, wild people because we, we used to do head hunting. So mm. we were the tribe who does head hunting and then we were look, look at us, the uh, wild people, because uh, we also used to raid the nearby areas, uh, the nearby uh, villages. And also uh, people were really afraid to come to our part uh, way before to Nagaland. So it was really interesting that when the missionary activities happened in India, people began to, you know, those missionaries began to look for the places where they could really propagate the, the message and all the uh, message of Christianity. So, but then I think it was very interestingly that they found Northeast India to be a very suitable place for them to really propagate their uh, missionary activities and also I think that is where a first came. It was part the American Baptist mission was part of the actually part of the Burma Burma mission. But then it's interestingly one of the person who was there in Assam that is also one of the state of Nagaland. One person who was there in Assam. He called the Parma missionaries, the American Baptist missionary, to come to Assam. Then they started the mission in Assam, and then later on it came to Nagaland, where it first uh-huh. reached to the outright in Nagaland. Uh-huh. So it interesting. kind of happened like that, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Very slow I... and long process, yeah. Wow, that's very interesting. And you've been you've been studying the the interaction between you know the Naga traditions and the Christian traditions. I want to ask you more about that, but I just want to I want to understand more first about the tribe itself and the people. So. First, you mentioned firstly uh, they have a practice of head hunting. What is that? So head hunting is something like this, where it's it's not like a random practice, something like that. But firstly, it has uh, ritual significance. Uh, the head hunting practices have certain ritual significance. Secondly, it have a warfare significance. So uh, if there are any warfare, something like that, in a society, so in our society there are different villages. Now, if there there are warfare between different villages, then it so happens that. You know, uh, during the warfare, a person who takes uh, more head will be counted as someone who is very brave or who is very, uh, you know, he will, he, his name will be uplifted in the, in the society or in mm-hmm. the village, in his mm-hmm. or her village, in his or her clan, something like that. Mm-hmm. And also at the same time, it also had ritual significance because uh, when, when they hunted the head, they brought the head to the village, actually. So mm-hmm. the enemy's head. They cut off the enemy's head, brought the enemy's head to the village. And then uh, there, there, are, there were certain ritual activities that used to happen in the village itself, where they used to uh, hang the head and certain parts of the body in a, in a tree. They used to wow. put it in a tree and then wow. uh, ritual activities used to happen. So, yeah, still there are, uh, when in India places and all, still there are those skulls and the trees and all you can find it, actually. Really? Really? So it's still a practice yeah, which yeah, has some sort of significance and meaning? Wow. So they were, they were, the missionaries were scared off by, by the trees with hanging body parts. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's really true. And I think because of the missionary activities and all, people doesn't do head hunting anymore. Oh, I mean, it stopped. It's <laughs> because the missionary looked at it as a very, very evil practice, right? Right, right. <laughs> so yeah. so the, these tribes that settled in Northeast India, where did they come from? How did they migrate there? Because they're not, you, said, you mentioned that they're not local from India. So yeah, I'd be curious yeah. to know that history. Yeah, so actually, it's a, it's a very long process in a sense because 
we we were believed to be people from uh, I mean people from the Mongoloid group in China. So, but then we didn't come straight from there to the northeast part of India. But then through during the way, there was like wave of migration. So there were this first wave of migration that people came, settled in certain place and interacted with the people. So like people came through interacting people like the people from Burma, people from. Uh, Myanmar, something like that. So mm. interacting with the different peoples and different culture, they they came like that. So I think during the process there had there have been interaction, a lot of interaction, cultural exchange, and also I think mm. that is how so, so many different changes that have happened during mm. the process during the fest. Yeah. So when did that process take place? What's like the general dates of that of that process? So I I I can't really pinpoint a date, but then uh, interestingly, the history and uh, as you might also know, Dolomi. Mm. Um, Dolomi also wrote about actually Dolomi is people speak about this one where he also talk about the Nagas Isthmus. He really? also talk about the people in the northeast part of India where he called them as the the naked people or yeah something like that. So I think that that is a very interesting aspect. So I think that it, if, if if that is so, then I think this migration that they have happened, it is not a very recent phenomenon. It's a very long ago uh, mm. phenomenon that they have happened. Mm. So I think, and I think that is also well documented. But then I can I can't pinpoint the, the exact date as of now. Yeah. Interesting. So and he called them the naked people. Were they like ascetics or monks or something like that? No, not ascetics, monks, um, as such. But then, actually, we were also. I mean. There were some people who lived, I mean, naked, I mean, who were literally naked, something like right. that, not all, but then there were um, people were there as naked. So I think, I mean, people just in, in one way, they just specifically called them as a naked people, which is also true in, in one sense, yeah. <laughs> is there any sort of cultural understanding why they, why they were naked? I... That 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 is the area which I I haven't really gone deep into uh, all, all of the aspects of society. I think that is also a very interesting question which I haven't really dug deep into why mm-hmm. why they were naked all of those aspects. But then interestingly, we used to, we have this one where we defend our hunting's uh, when we do hunting and uh, you know we used to make uh, clothes with uh, certain seashells or mm-hmm. clothes with animal uh, fur and all of those. So we minimally cover our body actually mm-hmm. and that time many people oh, interesting. Cover. so i i can't tell you yeah i can't tell you much about the significance of it uh, as of now because i haven't gone really deep deep dug deep into all of these aspects yeah interesting interesting i want to ask about what you're up to now but i just want to understand a bit more about the identity of the nagaland tribes and the aro tribe i'm curious how they self-identify do they see themselves as mongolian as indian as something different what's their sort of sense of self-identity so yeah, uh, here it's something like this. When the British colonial activity happened, before the British colonial activity happened in India, the northeast part of India, the people there were living as a separate part, which was uh, really distinguished from the rest of the India, actually. So we were living uh, separately. But then what happened was that with the colonial activities, people also came to the northeast part of India, and they also colonized the northeast part of India. That is when uh, the northeast part of India was kind of merged with the rest of the India, something like that. Mm-hmm. So, so interestingly, so with that one, again, as I've said, the missionaries also came. Now, when the missionaries came, interestingly, you know, as the years went by, they got their identity as Christians. Now, because of their identity being a Christian, now they, they had this sense of oneness among themselves. 
So people in Nagaland started kind of calling themselves as the Nagas collectively, you know, mm. because we have different tribes, uh, different mm. tribes, but then all the tribes together collectively because, uh, so they image emerge a kind of collective identity. In a sense. Oh, interesting. So among the uh, interesting. Nagaland, the Naga, uh, Nagas collectively. And I think Christianity have a very big role to play in there. So there are a certain group of people still in Nagaland who says that we don't want to be part of India. But then uh -huh. there are certain groups of people who say, no, uh, no we, we will want to be part of India, something like that. And then right. there are certain part of people who say, yeah, even if we are part of India, we should, uh, we should be independent in how we, how we work out our political uh -huh. system or how we work our social economic system. You know? oh, we should be independent, uh, independent and all of those aspects. So I think uh, th those are some of the aspects that uh, really intricate aspects, political, social, cultural aspects that uh, lie out in the northeast part of India and Nagaland specifically. Yeah. Right. The mainland Indian population was predominantly Hindu, I'm assuming. So the difference yeah. of Christian and Hindu served as a cultural separation and as a identifier amongst the Nagaland. That's so interesting. And just before we get to what you're up to now, I'm curious to know what is sort of everyday life like amongst the, the Naga people, amongst the Nagaland tribes? Is it sort of modern and what is life like, if you can describe that? Yeah, and that is a very interesting question because in a sense, uh, because of the coming of missionaries and because of education and all, our mm -hmm. society, the Nagaland as a whole, is very stratified now. Mm -hmm. Stratified in a sense, uh, the, there are certain, let's say, development activities that are happening, happening which, are, which are mostly happening in, let's say, the capital. So Nagaland, the capital of Nagaland is Kohima. And then the economic capital of Nagaland is Dimapur. So many developments are happening in these two districts, actually. Mm -hmm. Many developments are happening in districts. District. So interestingly, when you come to these two districts, like the Kohima and when you come to Dimapur and all, you will see, see, say that, okay, these people are kind of learned and they are development. Many economic activities are going on and then you can see buildings or whatever, not, and all. but then when you start going to the interior places, when you start going to different, uh, different districts and all, you will again find a different picture of Nagaland in a sense that there are people who are still practicing the indigenous system. You know, there are people who are still do, doing their own cultivation. There are people who, who are still into their own indigenous political system, which mm. they are not very much fond of the very uh, system that is there outside, outside of them. So, so uh, these, these are many intricate activities. And as you also know, that when all these political activities happen, all these economic activities happen, there's obviously a stratification in the society, but at the same time, as uh, Nagaland is moving to a different phase now, I think there will be many changes, but I can at the same time, there are stratifications, something like that, yeah. Hmm. And for, for those parts of the society that have remained in indigenous, how could you best describe the form of lifestyle which they're practicing till today? Um, so interestingly, um, I... Because I used to go, because I, I don't really go to the interior villages and all. I used to go sometimes. And uh, the life there, I, I should say, is very interesting. Because in a sense, you see, when, even when you go to the interior places and all, there are, and among my tribe, almost all of them are Christians now. But then, mm -hmm. interestingly, uh, their beliefs is also kind of different. Their beliefs is different in a sense, different from the people who are there in the cities, the Gohima and Dimapu and all. Their beliefs are different. Uh, they still uh, hold on to land because land is a very important asset for them because it's a 
for them, agricultural activity is very important for them. So I think right. they hold they hold on to their set of land. But at the same time, uh, they also kind of uh, look out to the people who are there in the cities and all. And also, I mean, they, these are some of the activities. I mean, when you look at the people there, interestingly, the day to day life is and I. One interesting aspect is that the government, the Indian government is also doing many things because since the, now the, the land, the indigenous land and all has been, you know, that uh, there haven't been many land, uh, so many activities are going on. So the government is also doing, uh, coming up with many schemes to help the people mm. so that with whatever skills that they have, they can get from the village, uh, they can get from the forest or what they can make with their hands and all of those things. And uh, they can also earn their livelihood with uh, small things that they can do from mm. the uh, resources that they get from the forest. So I think the right. government is also helping them in that way. So I think these are some of the small activities that are going on in the villages. And interesting. It's kind of really interesting. Yeah. Which village did you grow up in? Actually, I was born in Jandong, yeah, and I was there for just uh, just four or five years. I was there, and then mm-hmm. I moved to the city called Dimapur. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I was born so in Jandong, yeah, and then in a village, and then I stayed there for some few years and went to Mapu, which is the one of the capital cities of the Nagaland region. Yeah, it's it's called the commercial city of Nagaland. Got it. And then the Kohima it. is the capital of Nagaland. Got it. And uh, Tia, you've done something very, very interesting I, for the first time of anyone in your family, which is that you've gone now to study in university. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. yeah. So interestingly, um, in our family, as my grandfather, so my moms and my dad, their parents, they were all farmers. So interestingly, they were all farmers of farming and also uh, my parents, both of them grew up in the village. I also went to, uh, I mean, I have also been to the village. So for them, during their time, my parents' time, education was a bit difficult thing for them. So if you can pass class 10, then you, get, you can get a good government job because the government, the Indian central government, were also helping the people of mm-hmm. Northeast India. So if you can pass class 10, it was a big thing at that time. My parents' time, if you can pass class 10, you mm-hmm. can get any government job, something wow. like that. So it was uh, quite interesting. So my mom couldn't do much education, but then my father likely could um, kind of finish class 10, actually. Uh, it was, and for them to finish the class 10, it would be kind of like 20s during that time and, and with much difficulty. So that is how my father also kind of luckily he got the government job uh, there in the electrical department, something like mm. that. So that is how in the village, that is how life went by. Mostly relied on the um, agricultural activities, uh, my uh, grandfather and then my parents were kind of uh, lucky that they could go and take some education, but then Class 10 was the high, highest education that could mm. take during my parents' time. And then mm. uh, after class 10, if you want to take further education, then you will have to go out to uh, further away from Nagaland. And it was very mm. difficult, actually, during the time. It was very difficult. Transportation, financial, like, financially, is very, very difficult. So I think mm-hmm. that is how, uh, when I look at my family, uh, my grandparents, uh, that is how they had grown up. But then I think when my, my parents had a different vision for me and my brother in the sense that they had a vision that they want me and my brother to have good education they didn't want us to be there in the village working in the field but mm. i think they had this good revelation that education is something good and then you know there are so many development happening there in the city so why don't we move to the city and mm-hmm. then give these two children a good education then mm. i think we'll build a life there with these two children so i think that is how they had the vision and then soon we came to to the city, their Goldimapu, and then 
that is how we kind of we are slow we were slowly kind of managing our life activities and all and my parents always encouraged me and my brother to really study hard uh, mm. study hard that they, they kind of say tell us that you know we came from the from an agricultural background family and then now that we have moved to the city for searching for a better life in the world and you know that i want for of you to do something good and i think that is uh, how slowly slowly i also really got myself interested in education and interested in studies and all because i think after class 10 i had to move out from my house and then i had to go to uh, again a different college in the capital city in nagaland so i had to go there and i was on my own and i had to study on my own so that that is how slowly slowly i developed this very idea okay this education is important i need to study i need to do this and, you know all of those thoughts came to my mind and that is how i've been coming till now yeah Hmm. And where has it taken you? Pardon? Where has the journey taken you? So interestingly, I was very lucky enough to after my class 10, I was you know, during my class 10 also my grandparents were the one who really supported me in my studies financially. And after my class 10, I was lucky enough to go to a college which was funded by the Indian Central Government. So I didn't have to spend much in the college. So I was very happy. I was lucky to be getting to that college. And, uh, you know, when I was in my high school, I developed this interest in science. I was very interested in science. So what happened was that I went to the college and did my studies in science, my class 11, 12. And my college is I studied science, taking up anthropology uh, during my college days. And I think because of the kind of influence that I had in the college, because I think it, it was the institution that I was studying in, the college that I was studying in was a very nice college. I mean, one of the prestigious college in Nagaland itself. So uh, that, that is how the influences that I had, the teachers that I had, had really molded me. And I think that is how I could also even come to a university like this here, one of the Central University of India a very good university where I go to my master's and now I'm doing my PhD. So I think it's been really, good, uh, I should say, it's been a really good journey for me. Wow, congratulations. That's, that's yeah, really incredible. You. Can you tell me about what you studied for your master's and now for your PhD? Yeah, so <clears throat> for my bachelor's, PSC, I took up botany, zoology, and anthropology for my mm. college, my college days, bachelor's. So, and then... Uh, my main subject was anthropology. So I took up anthropology not knowing what anthropology is all about, actually. And that, that part is quite interesting because actually when I, when I transitioned myself to college, I wanted to uh, take up zoology, uh, study animals and mm. all of that aspect. But then what happened was that I didn't get uh, through in that department. So I got through an anthropology department. And I went to anthropology not knowing what anthropology is all about. But then I think those three years of college that I spent studying anthropology, um, it had really given me a vision that one day I will do a PhD in anthropology, and mm. that is also cultural anthropology. And that is how I came, uh, I came to this university, Nordistan University, because I found out that the cultural anthropology was good here in this university. So mm. I came with a vision that I will, I will do, I will study cultural anthropology here, and one day soon I will also do a PhD. So soon enough, uh, luckily, I got into this very university and then uh, I did my master's in cultural anthropology. And during my master's, I did my dissertation on religion here in uh, one of the tribes here in Meghalaya. So uh, I did my dissertation in religion. And that dissertation really, you know, started the fire of, uh, in me where I wanted to study religion mm. deeper. Uh, in a more academic way, and that is how in my PhD I took up uh, anthropology of religion. Yeah. 
<laughs> amazing, amazing. I would love to know more specifically what you covered in your masters. And for those that don't know, could you just briefly describe yeah. what cultural anthropology is? So anthropology have many branches, but here in this university, anthropology has two very important branches here. That is cultural and biological anthropology. Now, archaeological anthropology is also here, but then it is not taught as a different uh, branch like the other two branches here in this university. I'm specifically talking about my university. So mm -hmm. when you talk about cultural anthropology, now uh, specifically cultural anthropology is specifically about how the lived activities of people. That's why anthropologists were very much emphasized on fieldwork, where you need to spend your time with the people there who, with whom you are uh, studying. So you need to eat with them, talk with them, you know, you need to do the activities that they are doing. So I think cultural anthropology is very much about, you know, understanding the very nuances of the people, not only looking at the outer experience, not only looking at the outer uh, experience, uh, practices, but then also uh, feeling what they feel, you know, mm. uh, mm. trying to have that experience that they have in day-to-day -day mm. activities, day-to-day -day life that they have. Mm. I think cultural anthropology is very much uh, into all of this aspect. And when you come to physical anthropology, it's mostly about the physical uh, structure of human beings. So uh, how, how does certain altitude affect a human body or how does certain food habit affect because food habit are so much linked to culture so how does food habit affect your physical structure and all of those things so i think that is how these two are distinguished where one is about the physical structure of a human being and another is about the lift activities of human being and i think that is where i specifically was very much interested in the lift aspects of the human being now there is also archaeological anthropology where we do uh, archaeological uh, excavations and all. So I think these are some of the <clears throat> some of the papers that are taught now. Interestingly, in cultural anthropology here in my university, there is no specific paper for religion actually. But then, mm. but I had this interest in religion. I did my dissertation on religion, and that is how I got to know more about religion. Or else, we don't have a specific paper on religion as such. But then. We have paper on cultural theories, we have paper on anthropological theories, we have paper on gender and all of these uh, aspects of culture. Uh, but then we, we didn't have specific paper on religion, but I'm kind of lucky enough to found out these very uh, aspects. Yeah. So what aspects of religion were you looking at in your master's dissertation? So dissertation was, I would kind of say it was a bit simple. In a sense, I was very new to the research thing and all, and there were not many people who would help me in my research area and all. So what I wanted to look at was, there was a particular village where we were told to spend 20 days there. So we, all of us, the, we spent 20 days there in the village. So what I wanted to study was that because in that village, actually, there were Catholics. But then interestingly enough, uh, actually that the Catholics came a bit late in that, uh, in that particular village that we went. So I wanted to know how Catholics came into, because they had a very strong inclination towards their traditional beliefs and religion. And also I wanted to know how this transition happened in the village actually. So the historical aspect of how the transition. So I mostly look into the history, first of all. And secondly, I look into how it has changed the day-to-day -day life of life activities of the people there. How transition, transitioning from the traditional religion to the Christianity, how the day-to-day -day life of the people have changed. So 
I could do very well on the historical aspect of it, but then I think when I look at my dissertation now, I couldn't do very well on the second aspect of the impact of um, the uh, transition in religion. But then I think anyhow, that was a starting ground for me, and I think I have learned a lot during the time. Yeah. Mm, amazing. And which village were you looking at? The village is not very far from the university. I think it will be 10 to 15 kilometers away from the university here. And the village, the name of the village is called Nongklo, Nongklo village, where, mm. yeah. Nongklo. And that's sort of related tribally to, to the other elements of uh, the other people of, of Nagaland? Or is that separate? Separate. It's a very different people, different indigenous religion, totally different okay. thing, yeah. Oh, not, not, not Northeast, right? Yeah, uh, it, it is still Nordic, but then a different state of Nordic, yeah. Got it, got it. And you're now doing your PhD, is that correct? Yeah. And, um, and what, is the, what is the subject of your yes. PhD? So the larger umbrella of my PhD topic is under the anthropology of religion. Mm-hmm. Now, under the anthropology of religion, I am taking up the very aspect of syncretism. So I'm looking at religious syncretism. Now, Religious syncretism in simple terms means the very borrowing of uh, religious ideas or different belief systems from one system to another system. So that is where uh, when I look at my traditional religion, when I look at the religion, we had been practicing our uh, traditional religion, but then Christianity came and then there, there are no more traditional religious practice, uh, practitioners anymore, but then Christianity has dominated the religion. But then I want to see how symbolism has happened in, in their cosmology, in, the sense, in their traditional religious cosmology, how it had uh, impacted, I mean, how it had clashed or, you know, mingled with Christian cosmology. Something like that. Yeah. Mm. You're, so you're looking specifically at the, the syncretic elements of Christianity yeah. and, and what's, the, which, what's the indigenous tradition that you're looking at? Are you looking at one specific one? Yeah, um, I, I'm looking at my own people's uh, indigenous religion. Yeah. Wow. And, we don't have a specific name for indigenous mm-hmm, religion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's the indigenous religion of specifically the Ao tribe or, or is that Laja? Oh, yeah. Specifically the Al tribe. I'm so curious to know about it, but I want to know first, what is it like to be studying your own tradition from an academic perspective? What is, what is that like? Um, so there is this, in, in anthropology and social science, there is this debate of insider-outsider debate, where a researcher studies his own culture, his or our own culture, and where a researcher studies a culture which is very different from his culture. And I think, for me, studying my own culture is... A, a big advantage for me because I think one big advantage is, is language. I think language itself is a big advantage in a sense that there are certain things that are there in language which cannot be expressed or felt in mm-hmm. any other language. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you know the language and you know how it feels, how it, mm-hmm. how it is expressed. So I think that is a very important thing. But then I think a uh, second, second important thing is since I have been living in the city, there, there in Dimapo, and I haven't been so much to the village out there, so I'm not so much uh, in touch with the, uh, the core cultural aspect of my people. So hmm. uh, one thing that is there is that it also puts me in that situation where I always remind myself that I don't know, even if I do come from this very community and even if I come from these very people, I've always been there in the college and, you know, in my hostel, in my university, and mm-hmm. I don't know these people properly. Mm-hmm. So I need to start from the scratch, from the ground level. I need to start studying 
my own people and i think that is uh, that is a big uh, interesting thing for me and then the third thing is also where when you go and then meet people and talk with them the familiarity when you can speak your own language when people meet your own people i think there there is a different kind of connection when <laughs> you do that so i think that that is also a really interesting aspect of it so i think that's how i look at it yeah wow that's so interesting so you have you have both the sense of being both an insider and an outsider simultaneously yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. I'm, I'm sure that you're now learning things about your own tradition, which you never knew before, now that you're coming in and exploring it at great depth. What kind of new things are you finding? What is that like for you? I'm sure that's an interesting experience. Yeah, because well, when I was dial and growing up, um, I always assumed that we are Christians and our belief is the right form of belief, any Christian believes. But then uh, now as academically looking at uh, the form of Christianity that is practiced among my people, I see it as a very different form from any other form of Christianity. And I, I think that is a really interesting aspect that I see even among my people. And also at the same time that as, as I was growing up, as I've told you, I've been mingling with people from different tribes actually. So uh, for me, as I've told you, I'm not really much, very much in tune with the core of my own people, their core identity, core, uh, core practices, or core livelihood of my own people. And that is where now that I am looking at it from an academical point of view, and now that I'm studying history and the core part of my own people, I think it gives a, a sense that of, let's say, the unique way of how my people look at uh, their lives, their society, how they live their life view certain things and I'm also amazed that okay mm. oh there are so many things that I didn't knew that I was growing up in the city and you know there are so many things that I've missed the stories I haven't got to hear many stories from my grandparents since I was mm. not there in the village but there are people who know so many stories there are so many words that I haven't learned since I was not there in the village but there are some friends of mine who know certain words that I don't know and uh, I have to ask the meaning to them even uh, my own language and I think mm. these are some of the aspects that when you study it academically you kind of go deeper and you kind of I don't know, have to picture a sense that oh this is some, something which is very beautiful which I haven't known before something like mm. that yeah that's incredible wow that's really incredible I'm, I'm wondering if you could share one or two things that really caught you as, as really deeply beautiful just like off the top of your mind if there were any yeah so uh, one interesting thing is how we structure our society See, I think uh, in our society, and I think that is to do with all the society in Nagaland also, that in our society, they have a very strict system when a male reaches a certain stage in, a, in all the time, when male reaches a certain stage, you will be sent to a dormitory called the RGU. Now, when you go to the dormitory, all the male of that village will come to the dormitory and they will stay in the dormitory till certain age. Now, what they will do in the dormitory is that people, the elderly people from the village will come to the dormitory and teach them, teach them to hunt, to kind of stalk, you know, and then to kind of make equipments and then also teach them the indigenous religion and whatever not. I think that is an important aspect which I feel that we have lost now and that is uh, something which I wanted to happen now also. I mean, that, that, that is mm. a really interesting one. Mm. <laughs> that sense of the intergenerational exchange of wisdom and experience, that's, that's, quite, that's quite a beautiful practice, yeah. And it's definitely something which we lack today in, in the modern world, where young people don't talk to old people and old people don't talk to young people. And that's really beautiful. Yeah, that's and 
So, so you're looking specifically back to actually where we started the conversation. You're looking specifically at, at how these indigenous traditions and religions have incorporated and mixed um, and syncretized elements of Christianity. So what have you seen and what have you learned about their syncretic practice and experience and theology and cosmology and mythology? Now, since I haven't gone so much deep into my research now, I am yet to do so many things. But then when I was looking at this very word, because where was syncretism? Now I came across this very paper by Joel Robbins. Joel Robbins, I think he's from Oxford University. And I came across this paper by Joel Robbins and where he says, he talk about crypto religion. And when he talk about crypto religion, he says syncretism should be looked in terms of uh, a the theoretical perspective that he gave. Call, uh, he called it as the ontological preservation. Now, the ontological preservation is something like this, where the indigenous cosmology that we have had, you retain that one. Even if you are a Christian now, the indigenous or traditional cosmology, you retain that one. That is called the, uh, ontological preservation. Now, when I look at my own people, interestingly enough, this uh, ontological preservation is very much in play, where they have their own indigenous uh, indigenous cosmology in depth, and uh, they they call themselves as Christian, but then they're also it, it is something like this here. Now, when the missionaries came, they, they, we have different spirits. We we have different spirits. Spirits in a sense. We even used to worship stones, uh, the rivers, and and then the, uh, and all uh, worship in a sense that. We, we, we used, our indigenous people, or our traditional people, they used to say that the stones and rivers and all have a spirit in them. Uh, that is not God, but then these have a spirit in them. Now, when the uh, traditional religious people, they came, we have this word for called Sangram. And then uh, we have this word for another spirit called Temenen. Now, when the indigenous religious people came, they distinguish. They say that this Sangram God is good and that this Temenen, this other spirit is bad. Now, this was not bad, but then the, the cosmologist still remains, but then they separate this one where this, some spirits are good, some spirits are bad. So the, the missionaries kind of distinguish something like that. And I think that, that, that is something which is very interesting because now that, that distinguishing had happened, now everyone believes that one. Uh, no one believes that, uh, no one, I mean, before we used to believe that these spirits are good and all, now we believe that these certain spirits are bad. But then now everyone have come to believe that this, there are certain spirits uh, that we believe in that are bad and there are certain spirits that are good and also I think this distinction is, is, is a very important distinction in terms of the ontological preservation and the syncretism that I kind of, I'm kind of working, working into. Yeah. That is super fascinating. That is super fascinating. So the indigenous people you're saying had, just, just so that I'm understanding this correctly, because this is, this is so fascinating, they had their own form of what we would now call animism. Is that correct? Where, where, yeah, yeah. where things were animated with spirits. And with the arrival of Christian theology and Christian cosmology, their, their spirits were sort of dualized into, into a good and evil, into, into a dark and light realm. And, but, but because of this cosmological, because of this ontological preservation, they still hold on to their previous animism, but it's now has this overlay of Christian theology, which is dualistic. I guess in Christian theology, we would have some yeah. God and Satan. Yeah. And now it's been imposed in their, yeah. in their own cosmology. That, that, that's, that's, that, is that's so, that, is, yeah. that is so fascinating. I, I'm, I'm so curious about this because I'm, I'm, I'm actually fascinated by different um, cosmological conceptions that are more monistic versus those that are more dualistic. And, and the relationship between them is very complex and, and, and I think psychologically very interesting. 
and, and I think it affects the way that people conceptualize their own lives and realities. What was, there were these two spirits before Christian theology was introduced, before the missionaries. Did they, why were, why was there two spirits? Did they see them in some sort of interaction? Was there some sort of polarity or relationship? How were they conceptualized before they were seen as good and bad? Yeah, so it's something like this. Now, I just gave an example of two spirits. Now, they, they see many spirits because they were enemies. So they see many spirits. They are not only two spirits. But interestingly, it's something like this. So they have this, the greater spirit or the God called Sangram. Now, this Sangram is something like this where it's like the ineffable being where we call us God. Now, God is something which can, we cannot conceptualize fully or understand fully as human beings. So they, have, they also had the concept. This Sangram was that being which human beings cannot conceptualize or understand fully. But then there was also a creator, and this creator was called Lijapa. And this Lijapa uh, was very interestingly a creator which was in a human form, actually. So which used to come in human form and then who created the very universe in that sense. And interestingly, again, uh, they, their belief is that when you die, once a person dies, he or she crosses the river. So there are, there are certain rivers in the villages. Those, is, those they say that when someone dies, he or she crosses this river. So uh, when, when, uh, when this person dies and all, in the coffin and all, they used to put different things so that this person would take, when, take these things when he or she crosses the river. Mm -hmm. So when he or she crosses the river, now he or she will meet this very another spirit called Mujing. Now this Mujing is a decider. He will decide whether you you will go to uh, you will go to heaven or hell, something like that. I mean, whether you will, whether you will live a good life or bad life in the afterlife. So this mm. mooching now this mooching was not a uh, it's not a bad spirit. I mean, this is just uh, one who makes a decision for them. And also they also had this belief that where they could also communicate with the other world. So there are shamans and people who could also communicate to the other world. So I think. That aspect is very interesting. And then when missionaries came, this Mujing, who was the, the decider of whether you will live a good life and bad life and all those things, was met the devil. <laughs> the, ah. the devil in the ah. Wow, this is, this is so fascinating. This is really, really fascinating. I want to I ask you some more questions. So, I'm, I mean, I'm automatically like beginning to think comparatively and, and think about other theologies because I think that, um, I mean, we don't really have any other way to think about it. And because... I, I do believe that there's a, a very deep interplay between theology and psychology. And I think that um, insofar as we can see theological patterns amongst humans, we can also be identifying psychological patterns amongst humans. So let me, let me just recap. So there's, they have this ineffable God, Sangram is, how, is, is the name. And I'm, I'm curious to know a bit more how that entity is understood and, and to see what, it's, what it may be similar to or different from. Uh, then they have a sort of a creator uh, anthropomorphic deity, which the name is Ligaba. Ligaba, yeah. Li, how do you how do you Lijaba, pronounce that? Yeah. Ligaba, okay. Ligaba, uh, yeah. Uh, and then uh, Mujing, which is the decider, uh, almost in like a, a sense of um, yeah. there's in like an Egyptian cosmology where where the soul is weighed after it dies, uh, in sort of this sense there. But but I don't I, I can't imagine that there was much interaction between Egyptian thought and the the tribal Nagaland thought. But um, I'm curious, I want to I go back to this distinction between this ineffable God and the creator God, because there, there is this theme in theology, which I'm sure you're aware of, of a bitheism or ditheism, where there is the, the God that's, that's above, and then there's a God that manifests as creator. And I think you see this throughout many, many mystical traditions. It's something which I myself have been uh, tracking down and, and studying. So this, is so this is so brilliant. I didn't even know, but this is incredible. So how do they understand Sangram? What, what is, 
I mean, it's very hard to describe because it probably by definition it is the indescribable. How, how would you describe it and, and what would you compare it to? Uh, for them, the people during that time, their whole cosmology revolved around the animistic activities and also the worship of Lejaba. So they, they didn't really straight away communicate with Sangram, mm. uh, this God. And, uh, and also, they don't really worship directly this Sangram. But then what happened is that uh, they worship this Lejaba. So I think they kind of uh, make sense of the worship of God. And the, because when missionaries came, the owls, the people, this, they were also kind of worshipping the sun and moon. And the missionary thought that, you know, these people, these people think that this sun and moon were God. Now, they didn't think like that. It was a very uh, misconception of, the, of how they look at our, our people. It was something like this where this sun and moon also had uh, this very um, animistic activity in, in mm. them. So this also, uh, this also, because there is also called the sky god. So uh, sky god. So it, it's ruled by the sky god. So they, what they are doing is that they are worshipping the sky god, not the, the god that uh, they are doing. So there is no straight communication with the, the god that Zangram, um, but then I think there is this communication with uh, God through, through this uh, Lejaba and then this um, other enemy, animistic uh, gods that are mm. present in different things around the world. Yeah. So you said Shu is like the sky god? The sky god was like kind of Anang Tsongram, yeah. The sky god was called the Anang Tsongram, something like that. Yeah. Anang is like a sky, something like that, no? And what was the relationship between the sky god and Lijaba, the creator god? Did they have, is there some sort of relationship between them? So interestingly, you see, in, in the terms of how we think about uh, our cosmology and all, it's really interesting that uh, we really don't, I mean, make so much connection beyond, actually. We don't really think about the, uh, the big universe as a whole. But then when, when we look at our people, they just look at the day-to-day -day activities, actually. So the whole, uh, the whole view of God and their the day-to-day life ritual and activity is only confined to their day-to-day activities because mm. it is also because uh, there is no, for them, there is no distinction between religion and social activities right. or right. their religion and uh, social world. There, there is no distinction. Uh, that's, right. That is why there is no, not even a word for religion actually. Right, right, so right. I think that is how, uh, for them, everything is tied together in, in their society itself. Yeah. yeah. I think, I think that's very typical of, of indigenous traditions, that they see, they see all of these things as just their worldview, their part of life, I know, which is a word you've been using as well. In Judaism as well, by the way, there's no, there's no classical Hebrew word for religion. The, the modern Hebrew word is one which they had to borrow from elsewhere to, and sort of apply to that because they didn't, as you say, they don't conceptualize religion as separate from life and culture and diet and family and ritual and, and just, you know, everything. So... I'm I'm curious to know, you're saying that, that, that their concerns were not sort of uh, abstract and, and uh, about the universe in, in large. They wanted to know, they were more concerned about their day-to-day -day life and living. Were they, were there sort of more uh, immediate or intermediate beings, spirits, gods, which they would uh, believe in, pray to, in some sort of relationship in the more day-to-day -day activities? Interestingly enough, yeah. Um, so as, as we have discussed, there were enemies. But then when you look at them, they also believe something like this, where uh, they had this belief of uh, spirits. So you, as a person, a person has multiple spirits. 
not only uh, I mean not only one soul or something like that, mm -hmm. but a person have multiple soul or spirits. Mm -hmm. So what happened was that uh, this person's soul or spirit sometimes uh, can be an animal. So we we usually use the picture of a tiger. So sometimes his his or her soul might be a tiger or or I mean certain animal something like. That. So and then sometimes it can be it can be eagle or all of those things. So mm -hmm. uh, a person's soul and then his activity is very much tied to the natural activities as such. So as as, as I've also told you, they don't have words for philosophical thinking actually abstract right. thinking. How we do our abstract thinking is through stories actually. Mm. So we have we have stories. Uh, there are there are aspects where there are certain aspects where you can you see certain human beings turning into bird, or certain human beings turning into this animal, and then you know mm. going into the jungle, living. And then there there were also there are also stories where uh, certain human person who was like or who was left in the village uh, by the uh, by his or her parents, and he or she became a kind of cause of the jungle. And cause in a sense, not a bad one, but then uh, who, who who roams around the jungle and then mm. people see them. Uh, so so this the stories and uh, the nature around them are very much interlinked actually. Um, wow, I have so many questions. I'm just I'm just wondering how to structure this. I want, to, I want to ask you about what sort of the central stories, uh, the central the myths of, of, the, of the Nagalands are. Um, but I just, want to, I just want to first go back to and discuss this idea of the Sangram and the Lijab. In many, in many mystical, specifically mystical theologies, they separate the, the sort of creator manifest God, which is often seen as an anthropomorphic form, with the transcendent God. To, to give some examples, for example, in Jewish mysticism, we speak about the transcendent God as uh, the Ensof, for example, literally the, the infinite, the limitless. And then we'll have God as manifest in certain personages uh, called, you know, the Partsofim or the Sfirot. And that's, that's more of an aspect of the creator God, the, uh, the Yotzeberish, the one who enacts creation. And that has different divine names in the original. In, in Christian theology, which you may be more aware of, Christian mystic, someone like Meister Eckhart speaks about the Ungrund, the, 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 the Godhead, the ground of being. And then he'll speak about, oh, they'll, they'll speak about the difference between Deus and uh, Deitas. the the god god and the godhead which in some sense which is the transcendent god which is beyond and then the god as manifest or as creator god is there an aspect of, of that that you see that's that's paralleled to other elements to other mystical traditions that have this splitting of the gods into the transcendent ineffable and the and the creator i mean in gnosticism as well we have you know god the transcendent the pleroma and then we have the demiurge the creator god do you think it can be split upon similar lines um, I'm not sure. Let, let, you, you. I mean, I'll tell you something. You try to think about this one. So we we have this word sangram. So the sangram, as I said, is a main god. Now uh, we use this word sangram, this uh, word suffix, as let's say if if we say say stone, then in our word in in our language we call as a stone as long. So we call stone as long. So uh, when we talk about the spirit in the stone, then we call we will call it as a long sangram. Mm. We use this word long sangram, mm. God, something like that. Wow. Stone God, something like that. When we say sun, then sun God, something like that. So, so I I am still yet to go deep into the intricate uh, activities of how this God is used in all the objects that are around them, the mm. uh, animistic uh, animate objects that are around them. But then I think they use this uh, suffix God and also. But then uh, very interestingly. Nijaba is someone 
where where people call them as Lijabat Sangram, but then I think in many instances Lijaba is just called Lijaba the Creator. Yeah. It it almost sounds like it's a, like a pantheistic belief. If if Sangram is some sort of divine aspect, right? Is it not? Pa- that is very interesting that you have brought up because the Hindus, there are some sect of Hindus in India who are claiming that our traditional religion was Hinduism, actually. So, Ooh. I mean, their worldview is a pantheistic system. And they say that, you know, it was all, all Hinduism and all. There are people, people who are claiming, the Hindus who are, who are also claiming that one. And I, I think still the, those activities are going on in Nagaland, actually. So, hmm. that is also quite interesting thing that you have also brought up, which, um, yeah. Right, because it, it almost sounds like the way that Hindus speak about the Brahman, which is, which is sort of this God that's beyond and God in everything, right? Yeah, yeah. It does sound similar. And I, I wonder, in Hindu theology, for example, which I'm glad you brought up, they have a doctrine of, of the, the Atman, which is the soul, which is the spirit in the individual, and the Brahman, which is the God. And, and there's a very famous, you know, tones in the Upanishads which speak about uh, that the, the Atman is one with the Brahman, that they're, that, they're, that they're united, that the Atman is the Brahman. You are that, or... Tatum Asi in, in Sanskrit. Is there is there some sort of sense that the spirit inside of the individual is one, is unified uh, with with the Sangram? No, there's no no concept of such. No, hmm. I haven't come across that. Do they have a word for soul? Is do they have an, they you're saying they have a, a spirit? What what do they call the, the spirit of the individual? Yeah. So uh, the, see, the spirit of the individual is also uh, let's say um, it's very interesting. I think it's also because of the Christian influence. But then the spirit of the soul, uh, spirit of the person, or soul of the person is called Tanela. Tanela. Uh, tanela, yeah. We call yeah. it as a Tanela. It's a kind of spirit, something like that. Yeah. So we just use it in, uh, to just mean uh, spirit, something like that. So mm. we call it as a Tanela. Yeah. Mm. And are there like multiple spirits within the person? Mm. Because yeah, you, mentioned, you mentioned before that there's, a, there's also like an animal side, you know, like a, a tiger or an eagle. Is that separate from the from the tanala? Is that an aspect of the tanala? Yeah, it's a it's a separate aspect of the tanala. So that is how they distinguish uh, their different tanalas. So there there is one tanala that is like linked to this animal. There are one tanala that might be linked to their society, something like that. So yeah, there are different tanalas which are like linked to different aspects of the uh, their cosmology or of the world in that sense. But then I think there there is no such tanala which is uh, linked to the aspect of this zangram or this mighty. Okay, like interesting. That's very interesting. The reason I find this so fascinating is because, as opposed to just seeing this as a sort of pure abstract theology, and I think this is very evident in in the Nagaland people. These ideas are really the, the ideas which frame and give the narrative to the whole existence. These ideas are, are more than just theology. They're, they're psychology and they're sociology and, they're, and everything is built around them. It's, I think that's really, really incredible. I want to I move to, to more of the syncretic idea and I want to know what happened when Christianity got mixed into this whole pot that you've been describing, this very intricate theology and, and the ontological preservation that took place. But I want to know just first to, to more understand the tradition itself, what would you say is the main story or myth or narrative? Is there a creation myth? Is there a cosmological myth? Is there a uh, sort of redemption? Is there a soteriology and eschatology? What's, how would you put this story? Yeah, so before coming to that one, let me just come to this word called worldview. Now, this is how I look at worldview. I look at worldview as not a well-structured closed system because 
when many Christians talk about worldview, they say that there's this Christian worldview, there's this Hindu worldview, or right. Islam worldview. I, I don't see it like that. Okay, there are certain aspects of this, but then, um, you see, our, our worldview is something like this, which, is, which we call, I mean, we use a certain word called zeitgeist, right? The yes. spirit of the time, zeitgeist, yes. you might have yes. you know, the spirit German of the time. Term. So it's yes. something like this where, our, our worldview is not as well, uh, it's a structured system, but then it's, it's kind of something like this where because of the time, there are certain ideas and certain things that influence you because of the times that you're living in. So you don't have a certain st- set of worldview, something like that, but there you have different multiple sets of your identity. And mm. from mm. there, you kind of like throw your, your identity and your worldview and all of those things. So these are not like a well-structured system, no. It's just, uh, it's just some, some of the times, many of the times, not some, many of the times it's not coherent, it's not logical, it's not all of mm. those things, but mm. then it's just spread all over and then you, you try to go about, make sense of all of those things just one by one. So it's something like this. So when you look at uh, my, my own people and when I look at Christianity also, I kind of look at Christianity, uh, I look at the world in that way. So when you look at the, the various system of when you're look, looking at the salvation, soteriology and all of the aspects, it's, it's, it's very interesting because for us, uh, your good rewards and bad rewards are all dependent on the next time that you live here, yeah, for sure. But then it's all dependent on how you act and live in the society, actually. So when you do good in the society, when the people of the society see you, I mean, when your people of the society see you as someone who is good, who is honest, and all of those things, then yeah, you will obviously get a very good place after your present life. I mean, you will obviously have a good uh, good life so it's it's more of to do with the societal norms so when you, you, mm. you follow the societal norms and you be a good person and all of those things and you're obviously going to get a good place but then when you don't do this then i mean the things are going to be different uh, different for, for you and i think that is an important aspect since uh, as when you brought up all of these big words and all uh, actually uh, all of those things doesn't really make sense in traditional or traditional religion uh, so but, but then the interesting thing is this how did Christianity, as a big world religion with a big philosophical system, could influence these people, the people in Nagaland and many other parts of Northeast India? It's specifically because, see, in our traditional religion, there are certain aspects of our traditional religion which is similar to Christianity. You look mm. at Lejaba. Lejaba is very similar to Jesus Christ, mm. who comes in anthropomorphic form. Uh, anthropomorphic form. And it's very interestingly, these missionaries also took the word Sangram to uh, call Yahweh, this, um, you know, Christian God, this Yahweh, and they, they put the word Sangram there. And it's mm. very interesting because it mm. could also apply well to them because it's something which is like an inconceivable, ineffable thing. Now, when, now, today also, when you go to my uh, people and when you ask them uh, a Christian doctrine that is Trinity, what is Trinity? You know, none of them have any idea about Trinity. Mm. They I mean, they don't really care about much of all of those all of those concepts and all. Right. As long as they have their this ontological preservation that is a traditional cosmological in the uh, cosmology intact and it matches with Christianity. As long as these two matches, this, right. they find that okay, this is okay. I I believe the writing. I am a, I am I am a good Christian. Something like that. as long as <laughs> these two matches, all, all this Trinity and all of this aspect. What right. will you do in heaven? Or all, right. all of these aspects and all. But then, right. Uh, that's, that's really fascinating. Firstly, I really love the way that you describe worldview because as opposed to being something concrete and static and, and, and rigid, you're right. It is something which is, which is fluid and which is changing and which is amorphous, like all identity. All, I mean, even self-identity is, is changes you know, from one minute to the next and one day and year to the next. Yeah. Zeitgeist is a really good word because zeitgeist, 
both has a time, a temporal aspect, it's Zeit, and Geist, it's like, it's a spirit, it, it flows, it moves. I think so Zeitgeist is a very, is a very rich word for that purpose. So that's so interesting. So Lidzava gets, gets um, sort of conflated with, with Jesus in Christian theology, and Sangreb gets conflated with God the Father. Is there any um, room for, for, the, for the Holy Spirit, which is, you know, the third person of, of the Christian Trinity? Yeah, that, that is basically what we call as a Tanala. So as I've told you, a person's Tanala or spirit is huh. just, we call it just as a spirit that is the Holy Spirit. So uh, that is where, as I've told you, people doesn't really think about this father. They people there in the village, uh, in, in my people, normally they don't really think about this aspect. As right. soon as they get uh, cosmology right and as soon as sing spiritually. Right, right. Right, they don't really, they don't really care about the about the three part structure. But isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, but this is so fascinating. So the Tanala, the, the the spirit of the soul, is is what gets seen as the Holy Spirit, which which makes sense because from a Christian standpoint, the Holy Spirit is what is what you know goes into the person. Then that's very that's very interesting. And then you said the uh, the Munjids or Munjing becomes the devil in in Christian theology. That that gets flipped across. Just just before we get more into, I, I'm curious: is there is there a central creation myth? That the, oh, yeah. the Nagaland people have? It really uh, got off of my mind. So we also have our own um, specific creation myth. Now, this creation myth is kind of very peculiar in a sense that there's a certain village in the, uh, among the our community, there's a village. Now, in that village, there are stones uh, which are shaped in female and male dental organs. Mm-hmm. Now, people, uh, people believe that um, uh, the owls came out from there actually from what came out from there the house the the, 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 tri- the tribe itself yeah the tribe itself okay and wow from those stones yeah shaped in form of the general organs uh, we came out from there. that's uh, so fascinating very elaborate right yeah can I, you... I can send you i can send you the picture of that one yeah one second so are these like metaphors or or symbols or they literally believe that those were the, the physical objects which the owl came out of uh, physically the stones are there in male and female genital organs right it's very right. interesting i don't and, know if someone have made it and and they believe that that those were the objects which they emerged from in, in a very like literal in a very objective yeah, yeah. sense it's not understood abstractly yeah. or wow that's so that's so interesting yeah, that's very interesting. From like a from like a archaeological point of view, are, the, are these stones do they look man-made? Are they are they natural at parts of of the landscape? Like what? Um, uh, people haven't really discussed about that. One, but the interesting thing is that um, I I feel that it's it, it looks very natural actually. Uh-huh, okay. I I don't know if someone might have put some story out of it, but then I think it, it looks very ha- natural. How how I'll big are these? Send you the pictures. Yeah, please. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's not very big. Uh, it's not okay. very big. But then I, I'll send you the picture by uh, yeah tonight or tomorrow or something. Like Great, that. awesome, <laughs> awesome. Okay, has are, I, you, are I, you going to put this on in YouTube? Yeah, 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 yeah. This is fantastic. This is <laughs> I. I, I I, I feel like I'm not prepared. <laughs> no, no, this is great. It's so, it's like natural. And it's, I just want to tell, I want to, I want to say how this conversation happened. And so I, I've been, you know, making my channel talking about theology and mythology and uh, mysticism and philosophy or whatever. How did you find the channel? How did you come across it? Yeah, so I think it was in one of the Facebook group that someone shared in uh-huh. some religion group, something like that, uh, which I am part of. So nice. I was quite interested because uh, the, the video that was shared was on Job. 
the uh -huh. one that you did on Job. Nice. So that nice. was a video that was shared. Well, I, I just clicked, uh, clicked the link and then I saw that one and I saw that you're talking on mysticism and religion and all those. So that straight away got me interested. Awesome. So awesome. I click subscribe. <laughs> awesome. So, yeah. This is the, the, crazy, the craziest thing is that you're, you're living in India. I'm on the other side of the world. And you like just came across from Facebook group. You messaged me on Instagram. Uh, you DM me. And, uh, and like what, two, yeah. two, three days later, we're here having a conversation. It's just like the power of technology when it's harnessed uh, well is, is just brilliant. And I'm, I'm, I'm so fascinated in, in syncretic theologies. I'm so fascinated by, by bi-theistic mm. theologies. And, and the, uh, the owl tribe has both a syncretic aspect and both a bi-theistic aspect. Uh, I'm definitely going to be adding this to my research. I mean, this is, this is just uh, absolutely brilliant. The division between Sangrab and, and, and Lisbon is, is so fascinating. And I want to understand more about, uh, about how, if, if sort of Lisbon emerged from Sangram, is there some sort of way that, that Lisbon came out of Sangram? Was, was it created? Was it emanated from Sangram? Was it conceived? Is, is there some sort of uh, something there? Uh, uh, no, not actually such. Uh, but then it's, it's also really interesting that uh, kind of, uh, there, there's no concept as such, but then it's really interesting that uh, Dejaba is the kind of control, uh, mean controller that happens in the earth. Uh, so mm -hmm. he, he's the person who gives uh, you good crops, something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Good crops, plantation, or whatever. Since they are all agriculture based, obviously they produce right. in that one. Right, so, uh, that, right. That is quite interesting. Right. I'm, I'm also really curious to know, the, the first thing that you mentioned was how when Christian theology came, they split the spirits into good and bad. And before they weren't split between good and bad, but they just had sort of these different roles that one would judge, one would create, and one would, there's like, there's, I, I'm, I'm really curious to know what impact that had, if you know, I mean, this may, be, this may be too difficult of a question, but without that metaphysical and theological division between good and evil as represented by, you know, the divine good and evil, what did that mean for their own lived experience, for their own day-to-day -day life, for their own ethics and morality? Did they, did they have a sharp distinction between good and bad? I'm, I'm curious to know about the, the more psychological aspect of, of that non... non yeah. So it is more of something like this. They have these stories, stories of how someone, let's say someone went into, uh, let's say someone got lost in the jungle and then uh, this person has kind of turned into something else. So what happens is that you kind of encounter these things when you go to jungle, uh, when you go to the deep forest, the deep jungles, and only encounter uh, all of those things. But then the thing is, uh, these spirits and all doesn't do much, uh, much bad to you. But then uh, it, it so happens something like this that there are certain spirits, like us human beings, uh, we we do good things and bad things. They see certain spirits as someone who does even does good and bad, something like that. So I think uh, there's no spe I mean, specific cosmological activity of uh, 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 good, uh, good force and bad force, something mm -hmm. like that. But then I think it's more of, they take it more of like, as human nature is also good and bad, there is also this spiritual realm and then in the spiritual, the spiritual nature is also has also something good and bad in them. Mm -hmm. So I think they also kind of look at it in that way and not in a right. very uh, strong sense, right. Than, uh, right. vaguely. Oh, interesting. So, so there was an aspect of like a, of a polarity before, but then later with Christian theology, you're saying it became more metaphysical and more concrete. 
Is that concrete? Yeah, yeah. Okay, interesting. Um, I'm curious to know, has, has anyone else um, studied the beliefs of, of these people uh, academically before, or, or, or are you the first one to be looking at them? Uh, there are many people who have studied uh, academically before. I'm the, I'm the first one who is studying syncretism within ah, syncretic okay. elements within okay. Christianity and traditionality. I'm the first one. Or else there, are, there have been many people who have studied uh, in traditionality. And just for someone that's interested in looking more into the, into the beliefs, who is the classic scholar? What's the prime? Is there, is there like a primary text that's like the definitive work in the academic world, looking at the beliefs of, 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 the, uh, of these people? So uh, there are many works, but then one interesting book is um, the Aonaga Worldview by uh, Kari Lemla and one was, uh, but then it's, the book is like Aonaga Worldview and the one author is Kari Lemla and another Sujata Miri, yeah. Kari Lemla and Sujata Miri, the authors. And the book is Aonaga Worldview. So I think that was one of the most interesting books that I've nice. uh, come across. Nice. And then the uh, second one will be um, this one. Mm. The Outers O Alam, O dot uh, O A L E M. The Outers O Alam. Uh, uh, the title of the book is Sungram Ology. T S U N G. Sungram, the God Ology. Mm. O L O G Y. Mm. The title of the book is Sungram Ology. Awesome. It's written by O Alam, A L E M. Yeah, I think um, those are two that just coming to my mind now. Fantastic. Yeah. I'm I'm gonna put I'll, I'll put a link to those in the description so that anyone who wants to do some more research on their own. Can, can find those. I want to go back to, uh, to and I'm not going to keep you for much longer. You're, if you're a PhD student, you must be busy. But I want to, I just want to, I want to perhaps just end off with this idea of ontological preservation, which seems to be one of the key theoretical elements that you're exploring in your PhD. I'm curious to know what the, what the mechanisms and what the, and what the outcomes of ontological preservation is. How, how does it function in terms of how is it developed and how does it function for the people that are experiencing this ontological preservation. I'm, I'm, I'm curious in the, in the psychology of that. Yeah, so it's, um, as I've said, how I look at worldview, it's a very fluid uh, thing and fluid term, you know. So when you look at ontological preservation, it's also very much something like this, where since uh, with our parents and forefathers time, uh, they had this very, cosmo they had this, this <clears throat> cosmology, this uh, traditional religious cosmology. Now, what happens is that now my parents' generation, look at my parents' generation. Now, my parents' generation, for them, this traditional uh, religious or traditional cosmology is a bit stronger than my generation of people. It's very a bit stronger than, so, so the, the strength I mean, the, the how, how they look at, uh, how they conceive the, the cosmology. It's like, um, slowly, slowly, it's, it's kind of fading away. And then people are, the more people get educated on all the people are asking the question, okay, so what really is Trinity in Christianity? What really is this, mm -hmm. that, and all? And now when people ask all of this question, the more they ask question, the more this, this the other, you know, the ontological preservation of their own uh, traditional uh, cosmology will slowly fade away, in mm -hmm. a sense. So mm -hmm. I think, the, this gradual fading away or, or is something which is very important because in social uh, in, in social studies uh, it's very important that for me as an anthropologist I'm looking at the community of the people and that is also in uh, among the in a specific place 
in a specific place. So for me, it's, uh, it's very important. And for anyone, it's very important that uh, not to club all the owls, the same person, same who have the same ontological preservation of their own traditional religion. No, I think it kind of fades with generation. It kind mm. of fades with education and all, all of this mm. aspect. And different elements comes into it, uh, mm. which, which might have come from not from the traditional religious element, but then like a different element might have come into their belief system uh, from Christianity or somewhere else, something like that. So right. I think that, that those are some of the very intricate lines in social studies that needs to be sure. drawn. And for me, as a anthropologist, I need to be really careful about this one. So right. that is where I, 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 I coined this very term and I, I'm working on this one. Uh, I coined this very term for the disconnected belief, disconnected mm. belief. Mm. How I come to this term, this belief is something like this. Mm-hmm. Even even though these people, uh, their the uh, ontological preservation in terms of their traditional religion is fading away. Mm. Now, when this fades away, uh, there is still a disconnectedness. Okay, they will uh, this con- disconnectedness. They will find uh, this disconnectedness more and more. Now, what do I mean by this one? Let's say let's take the example Trinity. Now, when they question the Trinity, they might lose this very. Um, Ontological preservation of their traditional religion, but then when they question Trinity, they will find a disconnectedness in their what they believe and what Trinity is. And okay, mm. I've I've always been a Christian. How do I not know this Trinity? Mm. Am I not a proper Christian, mm. or am I not understanding certain things? Mm. I mean, there there will be this disconnectedness there, something mm. like that. So I think uh, in in Q term, this disconnectedness will emerge there. Mm. So that is how I coined this term, disconnected uh, belief, something like that. that. This is a paper that I'm working on. Yeah. Right. Interesting. So so you're saying as these syncretic traditions continue, and as they're more explored and understood, it will show kind of the the theological fault lines or the theological points of differentiation which will then be a question of how are we going to now merge this new aspect um that's very interesting is there is there also a, a flip side of that where there's a desire to hang on to the traditional indigenous beliefs and not let go of them is is there also the the other side of that no i think uh with the change in generation education and uh, how society is moving on i don't think they will be uh, going back uh, there that side no hmm. So, so they're looking to, to, become, to become better Christian or, or better believing Christians. Is there, is there a generational difference? Does, does the earlier generation uh, want to maintain more tradition and the, and the, new, and the, the younger generations want to assimilate more Christian theology into their belief? Um, somehow, when, uh, that when, you look, when you ask about the general, general difference, now, see, when I look at my parents, when I look at my grandparents, even though they have this very strong sense of uh, this um, traditional cosmology, they don't mm-hmm. see themselves as a lesser, lesser Christians, right. or they don't see themselves as uh, someone who needs to know more about Christianity or all of those things. No, they see themselves as someone who rightly believes and who rightly believe, practices or, or all of those things. So I think um, uh, in, in that generation, it, it is something like this. So I think there's also differences in how my parents' generation thinks about Christianity and religion and all that. How our generation thinks about Christianity and religion is very different in mm. that sense, in mm. that mm. other sense. Mm. Wow, fascinating. Wow. Uh, Tia, this has just been absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Thank you so, so much for, for reaching out to me and thank you so, so much for agreeing to, to talk. Wow, you've given me like so much to think about and so much to explore. And I really love the way that you're approaching your subjects, you know, with objectivity and with, with at, like at the same time, both objectively as a scholar and also as someone who 
can appreciate their beauty and can identify with aspects of it. Seeing, seeing you yourself marry those two yeah. sides is really beautiful. And uh, I mean, this is incredible. The first person in your family to, to move and to, to, to be able to take this up, I'm sure your family and your community is very proud of you. And I'm sure you'll bring them a lot of pride uh, with your studies. And, and it, sounds like, it sounds like the traditional community has a lot of deep and rich and beautiful beliefs. And, and, uh, and it's great that you get to explore them yeah. with yourselves and, and to share them with the rest of the world, to share them with me and to share them with others. Thank you. Thank you so, so much for, for coming on with us. This has just been such a delight, such a treat. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so unexpected yeah. and so amazing. <laughs> That's very true. Actually, I have a lot of questions to ask you, but then... <laughs> yeah, you're welcome to, you're welcome. I don't know what, how much time you have, but you're welcome to, to mm. continue to talk and yeah, feel free. And I'm, I'm ha yeah, I'm happy to continue talking. Actually, recently I, I've uh, taken this position uh, of saying, uh, being a religious pluralist. Nice. So I was also thinking uh, about to ask you, I mean, I don't have much time now, but then I was thinking, I was also thinking to ask you about what's your view on the person of Jesus Christ, actually. Oh, interesting. Do you, so you yourself identify as, as a religious Christian, as a, as a Baptist? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, interesting. Not Baptist, but then I identify myself as a Christian. As a yeah. Christian. Pluralist. A Christian pluralist. <laughs> yeah. um, and you said that your friends, your friends aren't as pluralistic as you are. No, no. We are having many debates here. Nice, nice, <laughs> and nice. People here are very conservative Christians. Right. As, as you know, uh, the yes. denomination itself, the Baptists, and the Catholics are here, the yeah, Presbyterians are here. Yes. Um, so the, the, way, the way that I see uh, Jesus as a, as I, I mean, I'm Jewish. I, I'm also, you know, a student of religion and, and a student of history of religion. And I'm, I'm very, very fascinated by early Christianity, and by the New Testament, by the, by the characters of Jesus and Paul. And it's something which I've given a lot of thought to and a lot of research. I, I spent, before I got more into philosophy and mysticism, I spent like two years just studying Second Temple literature and the, the like early Christianity. And um, the, way, the way that I understand Jesus historically and personally and this is my best understanding of the contemporary research, is that Jesus was, was a Jew who was living in Israel-Palestine at the turn of the millennia uh, under Roman occupation. Um, and it seems to me uh, that, that Jesus was someone who was, was upset with the way that things were being practiced in the religious sphere. He, he felt that things were becoming too rigid and dogmatic and the heart of religion was being lost. And I think Jesus finds himself well within the prophetic tradition of Judaism, where the prophets throughout Jewish history, uh, Amos, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Hezekiah, all of them, uh, came to the people and, and, they, and they, they saw the way that they were practicing their religion, um, which, as you said, they didn't identify as different than, they didn't see it as religion, but their, their religious practice. And, and they saw that it was being done in a way that was very, that, that was very cold and was very lifeless and was very, and it, they, they cared more about you know, getting the right sacrifices and taking care of the poor, the sick, the needy, and the hungry. And I think Jesus finds himself within that tradition, within that revivalistic tradition, which continues throughout Jewish history. And he clashes up against the, against the religious establishment, against the Pharisees of the day. And, and, that's, and that's kind of where I see Jesus himself as, as his character. And, and we know how, how the story ends. Um, I, think, I think what happens with Christianity as it splits away from Judaism, right? So during the lifetime of Jesus, there is no Christianity. There's, there's only, you know, a Jewish messianic revivalistic prophetic Jew who's traveling around the country trying to bring his message of a new way of, of practicing Judaism 
But in, in a way, that's really going back to the original form of Judaism. I, I don't think he sees it as something new as outside of Judaism. And I think what happens in the, there's an early split between the Jerusalem church and Paul, a soul of Tarsus who has a, you know, a revelation on the road on the way to Damascus and becomes the apostle Paul. And I think, I think with Paul, things change quite dramatically. And Paul takes the, the, the sort of the theology of Jesus to, to, a, to a very far extreme you know, following its following its own thought, but pushing it towards the end, I think, and he he sort of moves the this young community more in the direction of proselytizing to Gentiles and and moving towards towards the Roman Empire and away from the Jews who had rejected this uh, this early form, and and the very few Jews that are left in early Christianity become no longer Jewish. So I, I don't see Jesus as uh, as part of the Godhead. I don't believe in a Trinity. I I see Jesus as as a human. I see him as uh, um, safe, safe to say, a historical character. I assume so, and and one that was more or less in line with with Judaism, even if it may have not been the Judaism of his own day, but a Judaism of an earlier Judaism, which he was trying to get back to. And I I do think that we need to that Jews need to see Jesus less. Jews nowadays see Jesus as a very foreign character. They see him as a Christian. They see him as the father of the church, mm. the father of the Pope, the father of the Crusades and the expulsions, and then eventually the Holocaust. And that's how they imagine Jesus. And I think that for our own benefit and for the benefit of humanity, I think Jews themselves would, would be, would benefit by seeing Jesus as a, as a Jew, as a human, as someone who was trying to bring back spirit and love and kindness into his own tradition. So does that, does that answer your question? Yeah. 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 Uh, you see, I think uh, if you are willing, we can do one thing actually uh, later on when you are free i think yeah. we can make another video for youtube on uh, speaking specifically on um, my view of pluralism and then your view of religion and what yeah and yes we'll cross question each other and then yeah put our, our, our views. i think that would be really interesting yes and for me i really would like to do that awesome so yeah, i would i would i would love to I do that there aren't many christian pluralists yeah right right so I think um, one day yeah i would be very happy so if you if you tell yeah. me I guess, I guess we'll do the same time for you, the same time for me, if that time still works. If you tell me what day you're free, I'd be happy. Even uh, what, what days, days, even, yeah, just, you just text me what day, what day works for you in the week. And I would love to have a, to have a second discussion uh, about how you understand pluralism um, yeah. and about that. Um, that would be very cool. Yeah. But, That'd be really cool. Awesome. <laughs> I mean, Great. Uh, we'll, we'll just keep in touch. Uh, I need yes. to keep in touch. So. Fantastic. <laughs> so Fantastic. We will keep in touch. It has yeah. been a really nice conversation with you. I, Thank you I so, really so much. I like to learn more from you. Yeah, I really like it. Likewise. Nice. Likewise. Yeah. Thank you I so much. You, yeah. I hope you did the video well and I'll send you the uh, proper name of the books and uh, the pictures. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you so, so much. Have, have a good day. Catch you later. Bye. Thank you so See much. You. So that was the conversation with Tia, Tia Masu. Uh, it was so, so awesome that he reached out to me. Just really a stranger. He saw the video on Facebook in a group that was shared and he messaged me, he DM'd me on Instagram and we got to have that amazing conversation. And as you heard, we're going to follow it up and talk about religious pluralism uh, in Christianity in more of a traditional Indian Christian society um, versus ideas that I may have of religious pluralism. I'm going to have to think about how pluralistic I am for the conversation. But uh, yeah. Thank you so, so much for coming on. Thank you so much for watching. Please like and subscribe and share so we can continue to make these incredible conversations and allow people from different traditions to meet and explore and hear one another's ideas. It turns out that the ideas are not so far from one another and the 
psychology, the psychological depth uh, really underlies all the theological difference, I believe so at least. Uh, and I think even in the theology, we're going to see some very interesting ways that that shared psychology expresses itself uh, as we touched along in the video. Uh, if anything wasn't understood in the video and you didn't understand why I got so excited about the, the difference between Sangrab and Lizan, I hope if you follow the channel, we're going to discuss these ideas of, of bi-theologies and uh, I think they're really, really fascinating. So thank you so, so much. And for all those who didn't think that they could just reach out out of nowhere randomly and uh, and message me, email me, DM me, uh, hit me up on, on Facebook or Twitter, uh, you can. And uh, I would love to have you on. So please follow the good lead of Tia, who was the very first to do it. And uh, I hope you enjoyed his phenomenal story. Catch you later. Keep seeking.